want to invite you to turn to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. <clears throat> and we are going to be giving our attention one more time to Romans chapter 8, verse 30. I came across a new smartphone app this past week called We Croak. We Croak, yeah. W-E-C-R-O-A-K. And uh, the We Croak app pings your phone five times a day, every day, reminding you that you are going to die. Now, when you're almost 66 years old, such an app seems unnecessary, very redundant. There are multiple natural indicators that ping my body all day and night with reminders that my croaking is coming. <clears throat> but the, the, the creators of We Croak, the We Croak app, say they were inspired by the Bhutanese folk saying, to be a happy person, one must contemplate death five times daily. So, along with the ping, the app sends quotations to your, your screen like, life is too short to be lived badly. Or, and this is a good one, people are born soft and weak, they die hard and stiff. <laughs> And the purpose of these pings and these sayings, say the creator, uh, creators, is, is to help you, this is a quote, to help you stop sweating the small stuff. Our aim is to nudge people to stop wasting time on things they don't value and pay attention to what has meaning or will bring happiness. Our goal is to get people to stop Doom scrolling, and, and for those of you high-tech people like myself who wonder what doom scrolling is, that's spending excessive screen time consuming negative news, right? You're just always reading about all the bad stuff going on in the world. Our goal is to get people to stop doom scrolling and spending time with someone you love. If you think about something often enough, I suppose like croaking, um, it's not quite as scary. If we make friends with the idea that we have an end date, we're going to live much better. It might be just me, but the notion of being reminded five times a day does not diminish the unpleasant notion of dying hard and stiff. Uh, however, Thinking, meditating, contemplating the truth of, of Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30, and in particular, the, the last phrase of verse 30, namely, those whom God justified, he also glorified. That is a reminder that works for my well-being. I want us to revisit, again, these three remarkable verses again. So I'm going to invite you, if you're able to stand, um, 
In honor of God's word, please, please do so. Follow along. I'm going to read verses 28 through 30 of Romans chapter 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who have been called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's infinitely valuable word. Let's pray together. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes through the word of Christ. We've sung this word. We listen to this word. We've prayed this word. Lord, we're trusting you to beget faith where there is no faith. We're trusting you to strengthen faith where faith is weak. We're looking to you to intensify the working of your Holy Spirit. Intensify the discernible working of your Spirit. Make souls sensitive and awake. We pray that you would cause us to tremble at your word. We pray that you would bring about an outpouring of this deep and wide, long and full love poured into our hearts. Holy Spirit, so that we know, that we know, we sense deeply that we belong to God our Father. Pray that you would bring about spiritual awakening. Pray that you'd bring about new birth. We pray that you would do all the things that you do so distinctly and decisively. Do this, oh God. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. <clears throat> so the main point, once again, of Romans chapter 8, verses, specifically verses 29 and 30, is that, is that God is the ultimate and decisive cause of salvation. It's not us. We don't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. Salvation is not an achievement of ours. Salvation is an achievement of God. And in order to establish this doctrine, this doctrine that God is the ultimate and decisive cause of salvation, the apostle explains in these verses how someone becomes a Christian. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30 provides sort of a step-by-step sequence of order of God's saving acts. Theologians refer to the sequence as the ordo salutis. That's a 
the Latin phrase for order of salvation. And in showing this order of salvation, Paul, we could say, takes us into the proverbial back room where they make the sausage. You know, this is, this is Paul showing us how God makes somebody a Christian. And Paul has a purpose in showing us. There's a reason why Paul sets out to persuade us that God is the ultimate and decisive cause of a Christian's salvation. And that purpose is to accomplish something much more than simply make friends with the idea that we will croak. Because <laughs> that's right in the heart here. Paul's purpose is to help us die well. His purpose is to instill unshakable confidence that for those who love God and have been called according to his purpose, God will make an end to death. Those whom God has justified, he will also glorify. In the end, the ultimate consequence of sin will be done away with. In the end, the final enemy will be defeated. And in the meantime, come hell or high water, those whom God has saved are securely saved. That's Paul's goal in Romans chapter 8. And that's why, that's why every day is great. Thank you, Todd Novak, with Romans 8. And so, it appears that the Roman Christians were, in their own way, doom-scrolling. What if we're still under God's wrath? And Paul sends a ping in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, but yeah, but look, look at all the hard, sad things going on. How can we be sure that God is really for us and not against us? Ping. Romans 8.28. We know. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who have been called according to his purpose. Yeah, yeah, but there are some pretty terrible things, terrible things that happen to Christians. Maybe our salvation will prove to be in vain. Ping. Verse 35 and 37. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, Famine, nakedness, danger, sword. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Yeah, but what about demons and stuff? Ping. Verses 38 and 39. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. <laughs> yeah, but Paul, I have doubts. My, my faith is weak. I still sin. I feel like a loser. I see other Christians dropping like flies. What if, what if I give up? How can I be sure my faith will hold to the end? Ping. Verses 29 and 30. Because 
those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, what God has started, God's going to finish. Or as Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So now, now this, here's a curious thing. For some, Paul's description in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, of how someone becomes and remains a Christian is unsettling. It's a remarkable thing that, that the, those things that God has said and done with regards to his saving acts can be profoundly comforting to some while profoundly unsettling to others. Some will hear those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified, and they will be affected with tears of joy. And others will hear the very same words and be affected with anxiety, agitation. Why is that? Perhaps it's because Paul's case for assurance is also a case against false assurance. Here's what I mean. I'm sure many of you at one time or another have heard the phrase, once saved, always saved. Anybody heard that? Eh, not as many as I thought. Once saved, always saved. It used to be a very, very popular saying. Once saved, always saved is an assertion based squarely on Romans 8, 29 and 30. Since God is the ultimate and decisive cause of salvation, we can most certainly conclude that once God has, in fact, saved you, you are saved indeed. Once saved, always saved. Once God has set you free and his sov- put his free and sovereign love upon you, You are his child forever. Once God has called you, called into existence a new heart, a soft, sensible, responsive heart, you will turn and trust him. And once God has granted you the faith and repentance, you will be justified. And once you are justified, God will bring you all the way home the good work that God has begun, the good work that God has begun before the foundation of the world He will bring to completion, that is, your glorification on the last day. No one, no thing can stop that. Once saved, always saved. However, the problem with that saying, once saved, always saved, is, is the unintended consequence of producing false assurance. 
You see, once saved, always saved can and does produce false assurance if or when someone assumes they are saved when they're not saved. And loved ones, this is where the order of salvation is so crucial. If I, if I say to you, if I say to you, okay, believe in Jesus, and then the result of your believing is new birth. If you just believe, if you just say the words, if you just pray the prayer, if you just accept Jesus, then as a result of what you have done, you will experience the gift of new birth. If I say that to you, what may happen and sometimes does happen, is that I will have offered to you false confidence, a false assurance based on the words you said or the prayer you prayed. Just like that song we sang just a few moments ago. And, and what may happen, and what does happen, is that you are led to believe that on account of what you said or what you prayed or what you did, you are now born anew, and since you are born anew, you are saved, and now that you're saved, you're always saved. Always. That's it. So I have served as a pastor now. I'm, I'm now in my 38th year, and I have lost count a long time ago how many times someone has come with a story to tell about a son or a daughter or a loved one whose life shows no evidence at all that they have been joined to Jesus. Their disposition, their priorities, their character, you would never know that they are in Christ and Christ is in them. But they're also quick to add that, of course, that son, daughter, loved one is a Christian and when I say, well, why would you conclude that? The, the, the typical response is, well, they're born again. And I say, born again, born again. They've been made new. You say, God has given them a new heart, and a new spirit. But your concern is that there's no evidence to support that. And they say, well, you know, they prayed. They accepted Jesus. And when people accept Jesus, then they're born again. Once saved, always saved. So, loved ones, and I mean this with all my heart. I love you more than words can say. And because I love you with all my heart, my highest priority is doing my very best to make sure that you, the people God has entrusted me to serve, are truly saved. The notion of any of you standing before the Lord on the last day and hearing Jesus say to you, depart from me, that is a burden I cannot bear. So for you or for me, for me to stand before Jesus and say, oh, but Lord, we, we said, Lord, Lord, we prayed the prayer. We accepted the invitation and they hear the words, I never knew you. You have not been made new. 
You know, I could have an app on my phone pinging my watch 20 times a day, and I cannot imagine ever that, that ever nudging me to stop sweating it. My highest priority is to make sure your sins have been forgiven, that you have experienced the unspeakably stunning gift of justification by grace through faith on this Reformation Sunday. But if someone is not truly saved, that is, if someone has not experienced new birth, but has been led to believe that new birth was a result of merely praying a prayer, or raising a hand, or coming forward, or some other human act, then, then something serious and sobering has happened. God's order of salvation, this, it's broken, the sequence and false assurance has been given. And I tend to think that, that that's why those two verses, those two brief verses, intended to encourage and establish deep assurance can sometimes provoke uneasiness. It can provoke unsettledness in those that it has no reason to provoke unsettledness, and it has a tendency to provoke unsettledness in some that it should provoke unsettledness. So how can we know? How may we know that God has made us new? How do we know that God's redeeming work has been applied to us? How do we know that the new covenant promised by the prophets fulfilled in Jesus' death and guaranteed through the outpouring of the Spirit, has been accomplished in us. I'd like you to turn for a moment to Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 19. This may be, there's other places, but this may be God's most succinct answer. Okay, Through the prophet... This is what God says. I will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh. And give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes. And keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people. And I will be their God. And when God says, I'll give them one heart, it's not a reference to the actual organ in our chest cavity, right? It's, it's a reference to the spiritual part of our being. It's the soul and the soul's disposition. That's, what's, that's what he's saying. And, and this new heart, this new disposition of the soul is something that God gives. This new spirit is something that God puts within. And while we're still living, before we've croaked, but we're still living in the flesh, God takes away our hard hearts 
Hearts that, that feel no affection for him. Hearts that are unyielding to him. There's unyielding as a rock. Hearts that are insensible to him, that are about as sensible as a rock. And he gives us hearts of flesh. And God makes our souls sensible to him. And sensible to him. And we're aware of him. And the ears of our souls hear him. And the eyes of our souls behold him. And the affections of our souls are then responsive to him. And the disposition of our souls is yielding to him. A hard, unconverted heart is nothing like that. A hard heart is like a stone to God in his goodness. I mean, do you see how when somebody says, I, 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 wonder, I wonder if I'm really, I wonder if I've really been made new. A hard heart would never even think of that. A hard heart is like a stone to God in his goodness and God's truth. It, it, it just, there's no ping. They hear no ping. A heart made new is like wax. Like Play-Doh to God. And it, it yields. It gives it, it's shapeable according to God's truth. It trembles at God's threats. It's pliable to God's commands with a desire to obey. And it is a result of nothing less than a supernatural work of God the Holy Spirit. And that's what it means to be made new. That's what it means to be born again. It's what it means to be God's people. We are, we are His people. We are His possession. We belong to Him. He's made us His own. That's what it means for God and not us to be our God. Has that happened to you? My self-preservation mode was in full effect this morning. I was trembling about even saying that to you. But, but here's what 2 Peter 1 verse 10 says that makes it all that much more significant. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So last week somebody asked me, could a four-year-old experience that? How old does somebody need to be to experience new birth? A ten-year-old, seven-year-old, you know, four-year-old? How far down can, can we press it where someone could actually be sensible to God and respond sincerely to the Spirit's regenerating work? That's a really, really good question. It's a relevant question. And I know there are some of you whose hearts were truly tender and sincerely sensitive to the Lord at a very early age. Now, most certainly, 
only God knows. Only God himself who sees the true condition of our souls knows exactly for sure when, when all that newness took place. But I thought of the, the testimony of the Old Testament King David. He, he would seem to be an example of how new birth may happen far earlier than we might imagine. In Psalm 22, verses 9 and 10, he essentially prays his own testimony. He says, you, he's addressing God, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Being made new is God's work, and it happens on God's timetable according to the means he approves. And those whom he has made new, he also justifies. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, what does it mean to be glorified? What does it mean to be glorified when he says that? Does it mean we're going to be honored? Does it mean we're going to be praised? Glory to you, those of you who are justified. That's not what it means. Glorification is God's final act in a Christian's salvation. Glorification is the last link in the golden chain. All those whom God foreknows, he also predestines, predestines them to be like Jesus. He destined you to be like Jesus before you were born. And all those whom God predestines to be like Jesus, he also calls. He calls into being new, tender, sensible, responsive hearts. And all those whom God calls and gives humble, repentant, trusting hearts, he also then faithfully justifies. And all those whom he justifies, God finally and most certainly also glorifies. John Murray, commentator on this text, describes glorification as the consummation of redemption. I think that's just another way of saying that it's God's final act in a Christian's salvation. Here's what he writes. Glorification is the complete and final Redemption of the whole person when in the integrity of body and spirit, the people of God will be conformed to the image of the risen, exalted, glorified Redeemer. When the very body of their humiliation will be conformed to the body of Christ's glory. Another way of saying that is the way Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. Glorification is what happens when the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. 
Glorification is what happens, is, is what those whom God has justified, it's what they're waiting for. Romans chapter 8, verse 23, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's the, the last, the final act of salvation. Listen, all whom God has justified will not remain hard and stiff. Rather, on the last day, they will be raised with a new body, without disease, without arthritis, without dementia, without weakness of any kind. And the transformation which has started with new birth, it will be complete and in that moment, it will be instantaneous. What, it, what has seemed like a terribly slow process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Step forward, two steps back, three steps forward, one step back. It will suddenly be complete. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Glorification. And further, glorification means the destruction and the end of the the ultimate consequence of sin. It, glorification means the death of death itself. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So, Here's one more powerful thing that the We Croak app cannot ping. Glorification is something that all of God's redeemed will enter into together. We're all going to experience it together at the same time. To the Thessalonians, Paul writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. So loved ones, to be glorified, will more than compensate for all the pain, all the heartache, all the griefs, all the wrongs, all the sins and injustices we will have ever experienced. In Romans 8, 18, Paul says, the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us.
The, the promise that all those whom God has justified, he will also glorify, ensures that nothing shall ever separate us from the love of God in this life, nor in the life that is to come. And therefore, once saved, always saved. That's the solid rock on which we stand. Let's pray. The good news of the gospel is, is not just decide to live for Jesus and follow him. Without hearts made new, we would never want to, or would we be able to? Without a heart made new by nature, we're set on pleasing ourselves, not Jesus. We must be changed. We must be changed within. We must receive a new heart. Nor is the good news of the gospel message, just believe some facts about Jesus. Just believe that he died on the cross for sinners and then pray prayer and believe that, that all is well. The good news of the gospel is Come to Jesus. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And it is in coming to him that the blessings of the new covenant are received. Call on Jesus to save you. Call on Jesus to fulfill these new covenant promises within you. Acknowledge your need for his righteousness. Acknowledge your need for the forgiveness, the forgiveness which his sacrifice has obtained. Acknowledge your need for a new and transformed heart, which is promised in the redeeming work he has fulfilled. And so ask him to forgive you of your sins and to change your heart. The gospel message is come to Christ alone, through faith alone. Christ alone is the only solution to the problem of our countless sins and our hard and stiff and unresponsive hearts. So Jesus, we, we acknowledge that you are our only hope in this life and in death.